Well, let's have a uh, let's have a short season of prayer, and we will get into our our uh, study for today. We're going to be talking about God's law. Something is very very important for us to understand about about this. So, let's bow our heads uh, together and our hearts. Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you that you love us so much. You love us. You created a day to spend just with us. It's it's truly an amazing thought. And we're very thankful for that. We're thankful for the many blessings that you pour out to us on this day. And uh, we know that this day has a special place in prophecy. And uh, uh, we pray that uh, you'll give us of the Holy Spirit on this day as you've promised. That we may come to understand your word. And uh, to understand about your character and your law and and what it is that uh, is special and that we should share with those around us. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus who died at Calvary for us and lived a righteous life, who showed us the truth about your law. And uh, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We ask that the Spirit be given to us now that we may understand and have discernment as we look into uh, your Holy Word. Father, we lift up before you those who couldn't be here uh, those who are ill, Barb and Russ, we pray you be very near to them. Be with Susan's mother's friend, Barb, who and her family, especially, who uh, Barb passed away today. And, uh, and Father, I have uh, several people that I know who've, who've lost uh, loved ones uh, in the last two weeks. Uh, and, and some of my old high school friends who've uh, been diagnosed with cancer. Father, I pray that you be very, very near to them. Be near our children. We're living in a time where there are a lot of distractions. And I pray that the Holy Spirit and angels be very near to them and protect them so that the devil may not take them before they come to a decision. And they walk in that valley of decision. I pray that you will be very near to them and be with our spouses and families. Give me the words to speak today, Father. I humbly ask in the name of Jesus, who is worthy. Amen. Well, friends, I'm going to talk about God's law. The question I want you to contemplate is, was God's law blotted out? And we'll get to that in particular, that particular scripture here in our study here. We're going to take a look at it. But uh, we live in a rebellious world, wouldn't you say? Murder, robbery, personal assaults, they become the trademark of most all the cities. That's why the the Lord would have us to live in the country. That's one reason. Um, But it's also a trademark and and become a trademark of our society in general. Uh, It seems to be the norm in our world today or becoming normal uh, in fact, the moral, I believe the moral pendulum is uh, swinging. Uh, it's at far to the left now, but it, it will swing back the other way as we see some of the things uh, that Jesus spoke of happening. But uh, the, it has swung so far to the left that many think they're, that they are a law unto themselves. And, and they think that if there is such a thing as truth, well, truth is just what each person believes it to be. But like I said, we're experiencing, you're going to be experiencing a paradigm shift. Um, and I think we're experiencing a paradigm shift right now that says that black is really white and white is really black. Have you noticed that? And it shocks our senses 
those who have a bit of a moral compass, it really shocks our senses. And we wonder, how is that even possible that people would believe such a thing? Well, the devil has a lot to do with that, you see. Isaiah 5 and verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Are we living in such a time as that, you think? Can you see it? The woes are coming, my friends. Be sure of that. There are more and more shootings and killings today than ever before. I think many of us have have seen in the the news that a gunman walked into a gun-free zone at a school in Oregon and killed, uh, well, there are different reports. The report I saw was he killed 13 people and he wounded 20 more uh, before being killed by police who happened to show up who had guns. (laughs) That's the interesting thing about it, isn't it? But this deranged individual... He specifically asked each person, except the teacher, he shot the teacher through the window. That's what started the whole thing. But he asked each person if they were a Christian. And if they answered yes, he told them they were going to meet Jesus in a moment, and he shot them in the head. And if they, there was no answer, or the answer was no, then he shot them in the leg. Friends, we're living in a lawless age. We're living in a lawless age. And, uh, of course, that's a sign that Jesus talks about of his soon return, isn't it? You know, some teenagers uh, killed a homeless man recently for fun. That's what they said, for fun. We've seen riots in the streets due to hate and race mongers that incite citizens to revolt just as... The demons incited the mob to yell, crucify him, crucify him. Remember that when Pilate asked what to do with Jesus? Those who have chosen to protect and to serve the public and keep law and order have been singled out to receive this satanic wrath of the violent mobs and followers of gangs and drug kingpins. One uh, deputy in, what was it, Houston? pulled in to fill up his car and a guy walked up behind him and shot him right in the head and and then shot him, emptied the clip into him. Just walked out. He was just putting gas in his car. And, you know, we have car bombs and homicidal uh, suicide bombers inflicting murder virtually every day. And this satanic group, ISIS, you know, they're leading the way. They're leading the way. Each day as we read the newspaper, it seems that the quality of life has edged downward a little bit further and and most are becoming desensitized to this incredible sinful behavior. Like I said, it's almost like it's become the norm. At times we're tempted to believe that things can get no worse (laughs) and that conditions have hit rock bottom, but yet the next day even more violent or bizarre crimes are reported and we simply shake our heads in disbelief. Surely we are living in the last days of earth's history. You've virtually got to be blind to it and not know anything about God's word, not to realize we're living in the last day of earth's history. And the problem becomes more serious, I believe, when we realize that some of this lawlessness 
reaches into the Christian religion and it affects millions who would never think of killing or raping. It is a fact that the great majority of church members in America today have few convictions against breaking at least one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you heard me correctly. They have no convictions. They break it all the time and they have no convictions about it. You see, a very seductive doctrine has been developed in mainstream Christian theology that minimizes the authority of God's moral law. It's led many to uh, look too lightly upon transgression and has made sin to appear unobjectionable. In fact, sin has lost its horror for millions and has become an acceptable mode of life. Would you agree with that? For example, just how many men and women are living together without being married? Yeah, when you stop and think about it, you kind of go, whoa. We're talking probably millions of people. And yet they do not believe such living arrangements should be called sin. But God calls it sin. Police statistics reveal, this is very interesting, I found, that a large number of shoplifters profess to be Christians, though they've just broken the Eighth Commandment. And most of those who belong to churches believe that there's no sin whatsoever involved in violating the Seventh-day Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment. Now, how can we explain this contradiction among those who profess such high regard for the Bible? Because they do. Oh yeah, I believe that's the Word of God, right? And they say, oh, I, ha- I love Jesus with my whole heart. How can we explain that contradiction? And this question becomes even more important when we consider the, the historical position of Christianity toward the Ten Commandments. Almost all of the great Christian denominations, and even some non-Christian ones really, uh, have officially placed themselves on record as supporting the authority of the law of God. They will come out and tell you, oh yes, it's binding. Yet very subtle errors of interpretation have crept into Christianity. And, and that's what I say, have said before to, to, to people. One of the biggest problems that I run into in Christianity and speaking to, to people about the Bible is they don't grasp and don't understand Bible study principles. It's like at the heart almost to me. If you can get the right foundation and you're taught how to study it, well, God's going to lead you to the right interpretation and understanding. Not always. I mean, that's not, always, that's not the truth for everyone. Let me put it that way. Some people will, you know, not believe it even if it smacked them in the face, <laughs> you know. But we need to look at the law the law of God, and, and study its relation to God's grace and actually to salvation itself. How we see the law of God, friends, hear me clearly now, how we see the law of God has a direct bearing on correctly understanding Bible prophecy and its meaning for us who live in this time, the end of time. It has a major role in end time events. So we've got to understand it correctly. It is so easy to accept the popular cliches concerning you know, law and grace. 
without searching out the biblical facts uh, by which we all are going to be judged, by the way. And uh, we're going to talk about that in our Bible study this afternoon. But we must find Bible answers to such questions like, in what sense are Christians free from the law? Because I get that a lot. What does it mean to be under the law? There's confusion about that. Does God's grace abolish the Ten Commandments? Is a Christian justified in breaking any of the Ten Commandments because he's under grace? Would you admit that uh, there's a lot of confusion about that? Uh, Multitudes have heard emotional messages on sin and salvation for years. For years. But they still don't understand the logic and the reason that there must be a blood sacrifice. And this is the key to the sin problem, friends, and understanding the truth about law and grace. It's the key. Because if you follow their reasoning all out, there was no reason to have a sacrifice. And let's think about that for a moment. Can you imagine the horror of standing before a judge and hearing the sentence of death pronounced against you? Can you not feel fear and guilt when, for example, we read Romans 6.23 and it talks directly to us. The wages of sin is death. Do we believe what God just told us through the Apostle Paul? Why would you feel fear and guilt? Have you thought about that? When Paul says the wages of sin is death, why would you feel fear? Why would you feel guilt? Because earlier Paul said in Romans 3.23, he said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why. I mean, the words are right there. They're in black and white. You can't make a mistake about what he's saying. The word all might just as well be replaced with my name or your name. Joel has sinned and come short of the glory of God. See? Because it's that personal. The fact is, friends, that you and I are under the sentence of death, whether we want to admit it or not or realize it or not. We've been found guilty before the law, and there's no court of appeal in this world that can reverse the sentence and find us not guilty. The fact is that we are guilty. Because, you know, the Bible tells us, 1 John 3, 4, what is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law, the breaking of the law. And so we need to plead guilty to breaking the law. Well, then the question comes out, whose law did we break? Paul goes on, Romans 7. In verse 7, he gives this answer. He says, I had not known sin, but by the law. What law? What law, Paul? Was it uh, the law of circumcision? Was it the law of... What, what, what law? He says, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Well, where do you find that law? It's not in the 600 and some ceremonial laws that you hear spoken about. 
He's being very specific here. Paul is not speaking about sacrifices and feasts. He's not speaking about the law of ordinances here, is he? He's talking about the Ten Commandment law. Because it's the one that has that was broken and it demands death for who broke it. See, the transgressor. The wages of sin is what? Death. But in desperation, you know, we search for a way to be justified in the sight of that broken law. We come up with excuses, don't we? We think these excuses will sway the judge. (laughs) How can the sentence of death be turned aside? Can man atone for his sins by obeying the commandments of God for the rest of his life? We we tell ourselves, well, I'm just going to do better. I'll do better, and God will see that, and it will please God that I'm doing better, and so uh, you know, He'll remove me from death row. But what does Paul say in Romans 3.20? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in His sight. So, beloved, there is a reason why works will not justify a person. If a man is found guilty of stealing, Think about this. And, and he's sentenced, let's say, to 10 years in jail. He may justify himself by works. How does he do that? Well, he serves the time of his sentence, see? And so he satisfies the claims of the law, that law that he'd broken. He's considered perfectly justified because he's worked out his deliverance by fulfilling his sentence, and so he's, he's set free, see? In the same way, works may justify, let's say, a murderer if he serves 50 years of, his, of a sentence. But let's suppose now that the sentence is death instead of 50 years. Can the prisoner then justify himself by works? Can he work out that he, he can get out from under the death sentence? Nope, he can't. Even if he should work for 100 years, let's say, at hard labor, the law would still demand that he be put to death. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, it says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood. That means without death, there is no remission. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. That's what we're told in Hebrews 9. So friends, this is why works can never save the sinner. The penalty for sin is not 10 years in prison or 50 years in hard labor. The sentence is death. And the law cannot be satisfied except by the shedding of blood. The blood of the one who broke the law. And the guilt of the past uh, can't be erased by promises of good behavior in the future either. Like I just said a moment ago, you know, I'll, I'll just do better. Oh, okay, you're going to do better? All right. You can, you can get off of death row now. You, just, you promise to do better. There is a large class of people who believe that. Oh, that person has promised to do better, so we'll set them free. Doesn't work that way, though, does it? 
The sinner finally is forced to confess that he owes something that he cannot pay. When you break the law, the law of God, you owe your life. That's what the Bible said. The law demands death. And you can't satisfy that without forfeiting your life. So this brings us to the question that's created confusion for millions of of people, especially Christians, which is surprising. But if the law, let's say if the works of the law cannot save a person, is it necessary then to keep the law? Well, you know, when you read in the Bible, apparently this was an issue in the early church because Paul asked the same question in Romans 6.1. <laughs> he said, shall, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's the same question. In other words, does grace give us a license to disobey the law of God? Have we been given a pass? You know the game Monopoly? Yeah. You get a pass. A pass to get out of jail free card. Yeah. Well, we get a pass. It doesn't matter if we sin and sin, we got the blood of Jesus. Haven't you heard that? Grace, grace, grace. But Paul gives an answer in verse 2. So he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So the Bible says plainly that sin is violating the Ten Commandments. The law which has been described as irrelevant by many theologians. The law of God is irrelevant. But don't be deceived, friends. Every one of those great moral precepts is just as timely and needful today as they were when God wrote them on tables of stone. And and nothing has ever happened to make them less binding than they were when God gave them. In fact, we're going to see that Jesus came to magnify the law and to open up its spiritual purpose, making it more comprehensive than even what the, the Pharisees had ever imagined. It's really interesting, you know, the Pharisees thought they were protecting God's law. That's why they kept adding things to it. The first, we, we need to be very careful to designate what the law cannot do. Even though it points out sin, the law itself has no power to save from sin. Do you understand that? There is no justifying cleansing grace in the law itself. Well, what's the, what's the purpose of it? See, all the works of all the laws would not be sufficient to save a single person, would it? Well, we say, well, why? For the simple reason that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a free gift. Romans 3.20 again. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the what? Knowledge Knowledge of sin. And don't miss that. That's a crucial point. We cannot earn forgiveness by working hard to obey. No sinner can can gain favor and acceptance with God because he keeps the law. 
The law was, wasn't made for the purpose of saving or justifying. You understand? It was made to show us our need of, of being cleansed. And to point us to the great source of cleansing, who is what? That's Jesus Christ. That's what the law is for. And you go to James chapter 1, the Bible speaks of the law as a mirror. It shows us what kind of persons we really are. See, It shows us where we, we have flaws. Just like any mirror. You walk out of this room here and you go around, you go into the bathroom in there and there's a mirror. And you go up to that mirror and it shows a reflection of you. That mirror can't clean your face, can it? But it does show you where you're dirty, right? So James chapter 1 verse 23 says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. So James is talking about a mirror. You're looking at your face in a mirror. Verse 24, For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And so we read this, and it becomes obvious that the mirror cannot remove a spot from anyone's face. Its job is to reveal the spot, to point us to the sink to be washed, in essence, see? And so the law, in like manner, can only condemn the sinner by giving him knowledge of his condition, and then it points him to the cross of Jesus to be cleansed. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 is repeated by many people who don't even understand the law. And its purpose. But they point to it. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? But Paul further emphasizes this point. If you go to Galatians chapter 2, you look at verse 16. He says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Because the law doesn't do that. The law doesn't justify you. And so right here, we need to consider one of the most deceptive propositions, I believe, ever put forth relating to the law of God. And countless sincere Christians have accepted the idea here by reading these scriptures that the Old Testament dealt with works and that the New Testament deals with grace. Have you heard that? The Old Testament was just for the Jews and they were saved by works. And the New Testament is just for Christians and we're saved by grace. All right? You're saved by works in the Old Testament, grace in the New Testament. Now, friends, this is a lie straight from hell. It can easily be shown as such from the Bible. And as I mentioned before, if you have correct Bible study principles. <laughs> And the truth is that the Bible teaches only one beautiful, perfect plan for anybody to be saved. And that is by grace through faith. Or what, what we refer to as righteousness by faith. Have you heard that expression before? Righteousness by faith. 
Heaven's not going to be divided between those who got there by works and those who got there by faith. (laughs) Every single person among the redeemed will be a sinner saved by grace. Can we say amen? Those who entered into salvation in the Old Testament were those who trusted the merits of the blood of Jesus Christ. And they demonstrated that faith by bringing a lamb who represented Jesus, right? Confessing their sins over it. And then they killed that lamb. By their own hand. Which is what we symbolically do every time we sin. We put Jesus on the cross. And see what they did. They looked forward in faith. To that atoning death of Jesus when he was to die. We today we look back. To that same death. That Jesus died there at Calvary. And we're saved in exactly the same way. By faith. So we can be sure that all the redeemed throughout all eternity will be singing the same song of deliverance, exalting the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, some people try to dispose of the Ten Commandments on the basis of the new commandments of love which Christ introduced. Do you remember that? Have you run into that before? And it's true that Jesus laid down two great laws of love as a summary of all the law, but, he, but, but did he give the idea that these were new points? That they, they were new laws? That they were to replace the Ten Commandments? You realize, friends, that he was actually quoting directly from the Old Testament when he gave those new quote, new commandments. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, it says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, with all thy might. Oh my goodness. That's from the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 and verse 18, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Seriously? That's in the Old Testament? Well, you know, it's true that those principles have been forgotten by the legalists, you know, Christ's day. And so you could probably say, well, they were new to them, you know, in their life and practice, but they weren't new. They were not intended by Jesus to take the place of the Ten Commandments. You know, Matthew 22, when the lawyer asked Jesus which was the greatest commandment in the law, what did Jesus say? Verse 37, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. He quoted Deuteronomy. This is the first and great commandment. And the second's like unto it. Thou shalt love the neighbor as thy neighbor as thyself. He quoted Leviticus 19. On these two commandments, what? Hang all the law and the prophets. He didn't say, on these two commandments... They'd do away with all the law and the prophets. We wouldn't have a Bible today if that was the case. But I want you to notice that these two love commandments simply summed up all the law and the prophets. They all hang upon those principles of love. And that was the point that Jesus was making. So that's why Jesus said, you know, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
If one loves Christ supremely with their heart and their soul and their mind, he'll obey the first four commandments that have to do with our duty to God. He will not take God's name in vain or worship other gods and so on, right? If someone loves their neighbor as himself, he'll obey the last six commandments that relate to our duty to our fellow men. He's not going to steal from his neighbor. He's not going to lie about him and so on. Love will lead to obeying or fulfilling all the law. I've had people say to me that since we're not under the law but under grace, we don't need to keep the commandments anymore. Is that really a valid belief though? I mean, there are instances in the Bible where it can sound confusing. The Bible does say that we are not under the law, but does that imply that we are free from the obligation to obey it? See? And we better get this right, friends. We better get this right. We have a right understanding of this because if we don't, we're going to be indifferent to the mark of the beast. It's not going to matter to us. If we don't have to keep God's law, then what would be the purpose in standing against receiving the beast's mark? What would be the purpose? You see, friends, obedience has to do, like I said earlier, has to do with who you really worship, and that's the whole point. Who will you obey? So the Bible says that we're not under the law, but does that imply that we are free from the obligation to obey it? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 6 again. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law. See, this is what Paul's saying. You're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And what does he say? God forbid. Shall we sin because of that? God forbid. You know, I think a lot of confusion would, would... entirely go away if we just accepted exactly what the Bible said. (laughs) Because Paul gives his own explanation of his statement. After stating that we're not under law but under grace, he asks, what then? This simply means, how are we to understand this? Essentially is what he's saying. Then he gives the answer. In fact, I think he was anticipating that some would construe his words to mean that you can break the law because you're under grace. (laughs) That's why he says, shall we sin? That's break the law, right? Because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. And I'm going to tell you in the Greek, that's the strongest language that he could use. That being under grace does not give a license to break the law of God. Yet this is exactly what millions believe today. And they totally ignore Paul's specific. and That's pretty specific, isn't it? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. That's pretty specific. Yet people just ignore it. You see, if being under grace doesn't exempt us from keeping the law, then what does Paul mean? By saying that Christians are not under the law. And this is where some of the confusion comes in. Then we're not under law. Well, he gives the answer. If you go back to Romans 3, he gives, he gives the answer. Verse 19, he says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. 
Now, I want you to notice something about this here. I want you to notice here that Paul equates being under the law with being guilty before God. That's the key. In other words, those who are under the law are guilty of breaking it. So they fall under the condemnation of it. And this is why Christians are not under it. Because they're not breaking it. See, true Christians. They're not guilty. They're not condemned by it. Therefore, they're not under it. But they're under the power of grace instead. See? Later in his argument, Paul points out that the power of grace is greater than the power of sin. And this is why he states so emphatically, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under law, but under grace. That's what he's talking about. Grace overrules the authority of sin, you see, giving power to obey God's law. And this is the reason that we're not under the law's guilt and condemnation. That's also why Paul states that we will not continue to sin. Because we're under grace. It's called righteousness by faith. That means developing the character of Christ by exercising faith. Suppose a... Let's go back to a murderer. Suppose a murderer has been sentenced to death in the electric chair. And waiting for the execution, the man would truly be under the law in every sense of the word, wouldn't he? He's under the guilt of the law. He's under the condemnation of it. He has a a death sentence. And just before the execution date, the governor reviews this condemned man's case and he decides to pardon him. In the light of extenuating circumstances, the governor exercises that prerogative that all governors have and he sends a full pardon to that prisoner that's on death row. Now he's no longer under the law, that prisoner isn't, but he's under grace. You see, the law no longer condemns him because he's been pardoned. He's considered totally justified as far as uh, the charges of the law are concerned. He's not guilty anymore. He's free to walk out of the prison and no policeman can lay hands upon him for that crime. But now that he's under grace and no longer under the law, can we say that he's free to go break the law? Can he go out and murder at will now with no consequences? No. In fact, that pardon man will be doubly obligated to obey the law because he's found grace from the governor. And in gratitude, he should be very careful to honor the law of that state which granted him grace because he won't want to go back and face a death sentence. Isn't that what the Bible says about pardon sinners? Romans 3 verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we what? We do away with the law? No, we establish the law. And here's the most explicit answer to the problem. Paul asks if the law is no longer binding for us just because we have had faith in Christ's saving grace. His answer is that the law is established. It's reinforced, you see, in the life of a a saved Christian. And I think the truth of this is so simple and obvious that it shouldn't have to be repeated. But the, the devious reasoning of those who try to avoid obedience makes it necessary to press this point home again 
So here's another example. Let me give you another example. Have you ever been stopped by a policeman for speeding? Mm-hmm. I mean, most have. It's an embarrassing experience, isn't it? Especially if you know you're guilty. <laughs> but suppose you really were, let's say, hurrying to, to, to meet a valid emergency. And you pour out your explanation to the, the police officer as he's you know, starting to write your ticket. And then he, he hears your explanation and he just takes the ticket and he tears it up. Does this pardon, grace, open the way for you to disobey the law from that day on? Can from that day on you go out and speed at will and not have to worry about a policeman? No. It actually adds urgency to your decision not to disobey the law again. Well, if we consider that, we think about these examples. Why then should any true Christian try to rationalize his way out of obeying the law of God? What did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So we need to, as individuals, ask ourselves, why are we keeping the commandments? And we need to be honest with ourselves. Why is it that I'm keeping the Sabbath day? Am I trying to, to earn merit with God? Or am I keeping it because I really do love Jesus and what he's done for me? And we need to do that with every commandment. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Some bring up the objection that after the law has accomplished its purpose of pointing the sinner to Christ for cleansing, it'll no longer be needed in the, in the believer's experience. That's what a lot of the theologians and the, and the preachers are teaching. But is that really true? Not if you know your Bible. <laughs> it's not. The Christian will always need the law to reveal any deviation from the true path and to point him back to the cross. It's always going to be needed. There'll never be a time when that mirror, and let's, let's call it like a mirror of correction, will not be needed in the growth of, of that Christian. Because it's our life goal. And it should be our life goal to reflect the character of Christ. Right? Christ who said he kept it perfectly. So if it was Christ's goal and he's our example, it needs to be our goal too, doesn't it? This is what gets me about it. Law and grace don't work in competition with each other, but in perfect cooperation. And you hear the theologians today, they put them at odds. Law and grace. But the law points out sin and grace saves from sin. Look at it this way. The law is the will of God, and grace is the power to do the will of God. They work together. The law is the will of God, and grace is the power to do the will of God. We don't, and, and many of you have heard me say this before, we don't obey the law in order to be saved, but because we are saved. Does a peach tree produce peaches to prove it's a peach tree? No. It produces peaches because it is 
a peach tree. Does a Christian produce good works to prove they're a Christian? No, they do good works because they are a Christian. And I think a beautiful text which shows this relationship of grace and works is is our present truth for today. Revelation 14 verse 12. Here is the patience of the ungodly. Is that what it says? Here is the patience of the steadfast endurance. That's what patience is. Here is the patience of the who? The saints. And then it describes the saints. Here are they that do what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Law and grace. I think it's a perfect description of faith and works. Law and grace. And it's found in who? The saints. <laughs> the works of obedience, friends, then, are the real test of love. And this is why they are so necessary in the experience of, of those who follow Jesus, those who are true believers. James 2 and verse 20 says, Faith without works is what? Dead. Why? Because your works prove your faith. You're not working to earn salvation, but if you have faith, you're going to do the works of Jesus, see? No husband ever won his wife's heart by words alone. Right? I mean, if you, exactly. You need to walk what you're talking, right? I mean, if you hadn't given flowers, you didn't show any devotion towards her, you didn't give her any gifts of love, you didn't spend time with her, you'd still be searching for a wife, let me tell you. And then you come to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Just like a potential wife. If all you did was say, I love you, I love you, I love you, but you didn't express it in any other way, she's going to know that your words are hollow. She's not going to want to know you. Words and profession are not enough. The true evidence is obedience. See? Today's bumper stickers really show, I think, a shallow concept of what true love is. You know, by Christians, you'll see them on their bumper stickers, you know. Smile if you love Jesus. You heard that before. Honk if you love Jesus. Well, I'm concerned of what Jesus said himself. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Right? And that's exactly what most people don't want to do. If love makes no demands beyond a smile or a wave, then it's welcome. But if the lifestyle has to be changed, well, what's going to happen? The majority is going to reject it. You see, unfortunately, most people today are not looking for truth. They're looking for a smooth, easy, you know, comfortable religion, a social club that's going to allow them to live the way they please, but still give them the assurance of salvation. See? It's really sad. One of the strongest texts in the Bible on this subject, though, is found in 1 John. Chapter 2, verse 4. You know, it's amazing to me. I share some of these same scriptures with people and they're stunned. They cannot believe that that's in the Bible. 
I just can't believe it. 1 John 2 and verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And John could write that with such assurance because it's one of the most deeply established truths that you find in God's Word. Remember Matthew 7, I talked about that a moment ago. Jesus spoke of those who said, Lord, Lord, but they didn't do the will of the Father. And then he described many who would seek entrance to the kingdom claiming to be you know, workers of miracles and we did this in your name and did that in your name. But he would say to them what? I never knew you. Depart from me. He doesn't say hang around. Ye that work iniquity. You see, to know Christ is to love Him. And to love Christ is to obey Him. And if one is not obeying Christ, he doesn't love Christ as he should. And if he doesn't love the Master, then he doesn't know Him well enough, does he? This is what John's saying. John 17, 3, he assured us, he said, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And so thus we can see how knowing and loving and obeying are all tied closely together and are absolutely inseparable in the life of God's faithful people. And John summed them up in, these, in this word. He summed it up. 1 John 5, 3. He said, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. They're not grievous. There are many people, many Christians today, that, only, that believe that only Christ could have obeyed the law. And only because He had special powers, you see, that have not been made available to us. He was different. I mean, He was God. Of course, God can keep God's law, Right? Now, it's true that Jesus is the only one who lived without committing a single act of disobedience. He didn't sin. But his reason for living that perfect, victorious life, Paul lays out in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh... God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That Greek word there is sarx. It means our sinful nature. In the likeness of our sinful nature and for sin, this is why He sent Him, condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't just come down and say to everybody, you know, I condemn sin. And that was it. He proved it. That's how He condemned sin in the flesh. He lived a life without sinning. That's how he proved it. That's how he condemned it. In verse 4, why did he do that? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We don't walk after the sinful tendencies. We walk after the Holy Spirit's goal for us, see? But don't miss the important point that Jesus came to condense condemn sin by his perfect life in the flesh in order that the righteousness of the law, that would make the law pretty important, wouldn't it? The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is that righteousness? 
Well, in this case, it's the Greek word dikaima. It's used here to mean, literally, the just requirement of the law. So, he did it for what reason? He condemned sin in the flesh that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So this can only mean that Christ won His perfect victory in order to make that same victory available to us. And not just waving a magic wand. That's not what happened. After conquering the devil, showing that in the flesh the law can be obeyed, Christ now offers to come into our hearts, share the victory for us by helping us to conquer the devil like He did. That's what that means. The just requirement of the law in us. And only by his strength and power can the requirement of the law be fulfilled by anybody. Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things. Leap tall buildings at a single bound. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about keeping the law. The righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us. That's what Paul's talking about. I can do all that through Christ. Why? Because he strengthens me to do it. He gives me the grace to do God's will. What is the law? The law is God's will. Grace is the power to do God's will. You see, not one person can ever keep one of those commandments in human power alone. But all of them may be kept through the enabling strength of Jesus. You see, He imputes. You know that big word, imputes. In other words, He gives credit He imputes His righteousness for cleansing, for forgiveness, for that big word justification. And He imparts, that's that other word, He gives power, that's what impart means. He gives power. He imparts His righteousness for victorious living or what we call sanctification. Christ came in a body of flesh like our own and depended wholly upon His Father in living His life to demonstrate to us to all creation, the kind of victory that is possible for every soul who draws like he did upon the Father's grace. We can overcome temptation like he overcame temptation. See? Now someone may ask, and believe it or not, I've had this question. How many of the Ten Commandments can I, I break in order I have to break in order to be guilty. (laughs) I've actually had somebody ask me that. (laughs) How many do I have to break before I'm found guilty? Seriously. (laughs) Sometimes you just kind of look at people and in your mind you're going, are you serious? (laughs) How many times can I speed in front of the police officer before he's going to, you know, Write me a ticket. Was it any wonder? When we raise our kids, we go one, two, we. three. Yes, we. <laughs> yeah. What are we? What are we ingraining then into the kids? Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's not good either. No. <laughs> James De- Deb taught. You know, mentioned it. James two. Verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Because basically, you've heard, you've heard me preach this before. The Ten Commandments is basically one law. It's the law of God. It's one law. 
And this is what James is saying. You break one, you break it all. See? Verse 11, For he that saith, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of the libertine. So to break one is to be guilty of sin. To break one. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Just to break one. The, the commandments, the Ten Commandments are like a chain. Look at it like this. It's like a chain with ten links. When one link is broken, the chain's broken. Okay? And those who stand in the judgment will have to meet the acid test of the Ten Commandments. So if you break one, you're guilty of breaking it all. That's the test. If a practicing thief should seek entrance into the kingdom of God, he's going to be rejected. And this is why Paul says thieves will not inherit the heavenly city. He, he even says liars aren't going to be there, adulterers, idolaters, people who are covetous, they're not going to be in the kingdom. What do all those have in common? They break the law of God. Why? Why won't they be in the kingdom? Because the Ten Commandments forbid those things. And men will be judged by that law. Not one person will be admitted into heaven that is willfully violating any one of those commandments because breaking one is breaking them all. Someone might object that this is making works the basis of entering the kingdom. No. Actually, it's making love the qualifying factor. Jesus said again, the greatest commandment of all is to love God supremely. If you love me, this is what he's saying, keep my commandments. Those who practice any known sin are really confessing they don't love God with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. So it's the lack of love that shuts people out of the kingdom, not the, the act of disobedience. That just exposes the lack of love. See, This is what I told the kids and I've, even, I've told people, God is concerned with our reaction to his gift of his son. Do you love my son? And Jesus said, how do we express our love to him? We keep the commandments. So ultimately it comes down to love. Do we love God or do we love ourself? Now it's expressed in many different ways, see. Let's think it through for a moment. Jesus had to die because the law had been broken. And when you break the law, the wages of sin is what? Death. So sin demanded death. If the law could have been changed, the penalty of sin would have been set aside as well, right? I'll just change the law so you're not guilty. But Romans 4.15 says, For where no law is, there's no transgression. See? Right. See? So strong was the authority of that unchangeable law that God himself could not abolish it. Not even to save his own son from death. That tells us something about God's law, doesn't it? So can't you see that no greater demonstration could have been made to prove the permanence of the Ten Commandments? In the entire universe, God could not have displayed 
a more convincing and irrefutable argument in favor of his law. Jesus died due to the breaking of the law. Not that he broke it, but the law demanded death. Yet in the face of this tremendous exhibition of love, really, misguided millions, they belittle the government of God by belittling his law. They don't understand that the law is only a reflection of his holiness and his righteousness and what true love really is. In fact, to speak of eliminating the law of God is is to border on treason against the government of heaven. Basically it is. Satan was kicked out of heaven for treason. Eliminating the law of God eliminates God. Can you see that? Christians today don't see that. They say, oh, the law was done away with. You might as well say God was done away with. Some might ask, if it wasn't the Ten Commandments that were nailed to the cross, what was? Well, the answer is actually quite simple, friends. The scripture that speaks to this is found in Colossians 2. You're familiar with this. And our question was, was God's law blotted out? This gets right to that. Colossians 2 verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore what? Judge you in what? Meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, plural, which are a shadow of things what? To come. But the body is of Christ. So Paul says that it was the handwriting of ordinances that was nailed to the cross. That's interesting. He's differentiating something here, isn't he? Deuteronomy 31 tells us, it sheds great light on this handwriting of ordinances. If you go to Deuteronomy 31, verse 24, it says, And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book, and he had spent part of Deuteronomy going through the law again, So he wrote them in a book until they are finished that Moses commanded the Levites which bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord saying, take this book of the law and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may be therefore a witness against thee. Now the laws God gave to Israel had two sections. The first section was the Ten Commandments. And the second was the law that was written by Moses in a book. But notice that this book was placed beside the Ark. Because we read later on where it says the only thing that was in the ark was the Ten Commandments, was the pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. So we know that this, he's talking about is put on the outside, on the side of the ark. Well, the Ten Commandments were inside. One was written by God, and the other was written by who? Moses. Now that law of Moses, and in particular 
The rituals described in it were temporary until the coming of the Messiah. Well, where do you get that from, Pastor Joel? Right Galatians 3. Galatians 3 and verse 19. Paul speaks of this law of ordinances. He says, wherefore then serveth the law. That's what he's talking about. The rituals. The, it was added because of transgressions. What do we read early in Romans? Where there is no law, there is no sin. Right? So how could it be added because of transgressions if there was no law? Well, the law has always been there. See? The law of God. But this, these rituals, these shadows of things to come, he's saying it was added because of transgressions. Till when? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Were the Ten Commandments added because of transgressions? No. God's law has existed as long as God has existed. Well, then what laws were added because of breaking God's Ten Commandments? Well, Deuteronomy confirmed the fact that it was the rituals of Moses' law that were added because of sin. And they passed away. They were nailed to the cross when the seed came and died for mankind. Who was the seed? Jesus. And you notice there in Colossians 2, Paul speaks of special Sabbaths and foods and drinks and festivals and new moons, right? None of those are mentioned in the Ten Commandments, are they? So Paul's talking about a different law, isn't he? Only in the law of Moses of ordinances are such things mentioned. And it was that law, again, that Jesus nailed to the cross when he died, not the Ten Commandments. It was this law of ordinances that was blotted out. Not the Ten Commandments. Because it was blotted out because Jesus fulfilled all those who were shadows. Those laws were shadows of things to come that pointed towards the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes and fulfills them, you don't keep doing them. They've been full. I don't want to say you don't keep doing them necessarily. That He fulfilled them in that they've been done. They pointed towards like a map. When you get to your destination, you don't need the map anymore. So friends, look into that mirror. Look into the Holy Ten Commandments right now for a a divine revelation of what God wants your life to be. Confess that you have no strength to live up to that standard. Then turn your eyes to the only one who desires this very moment to enter your life and give you power to obey. He's going to fulfill the righteousness of the law, the just requirements of the law in you if you ask him to. So you can say with Paul, Galatians 2.20, Paul said, Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So were the Ten Commandments blotted out? Paul says, God forbid. They were magnified in Christ and that magnification can be seen in our life if we exercise faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do again thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your law. Their promises to us. Promises that we may walk in liberty by grace, by faith, by the Spirit. 
We thank you for this promise, for we know we fail so often. And we ask ourselves, how can we, we keep the law? Well, we can't ourselves. So we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives. We confess our sins, we claim the blood of Jesus, and we pray for victory. We pray that our love for Jesus will be increased and that we may be a, a witness to the world of His grace. Please continue to be with us this Sabbath day, and especially this afternoon we get into the Bible study again. We thank you for hearing this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.